Well, here in 2 Samuel, now, King Saul is dead. We talked about that last week, and that is what creates the, the uh, big break between 1 and 2 Samuel. Now it's time for David, the rightful heir, to take his place on the throne. Now, you may be thinking, well, finally, this guy is off the scene, dead and gone. He's been a bad guy for most of uh, 1 Samuel. He's gotten in the way of a lot of good things that the Lord wanted to do through King David-elect, but because of his selfishness and his pride and his stubbornness, uh, those things were hindered. Now, so you may be thinking, well, now that he's dead, uh, King David can ascend to the throne, reign over Israel, and everything's gonna be happy. Long live the king. Uh, unfortunately, no, it's not going to happen as easy as that. Uh, self-centered people who do their thing over a lifetime, uh, when they die, they often leave a legacy of sorts because they've impacted other people who are still living. And so just because they disappear doesn't mean life suddenly gets all wonderful, as most of us can uh, testify to. Uh, now, Saul will leave behind someone who's very much like him, who's been in, uh, infected, I almost said, but it's the great word for it, infected by Saul's bad attitude, his, his uh, self-centered way of life, and that would be his, his general his general Abner is going to cause a lot of problems because he is a lot like King Saul. Uh, now, if ever a proverb uh, were true about a certain individual, uh, Proverbs 29 and verse 1 about King Saul, a man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Uh, this man, he had so many opportunities, and we saw... He's kind of the poster child, King Saul, was of uh, a life of, full of potential, but because of a lot of bad choices, he forfeited the grace that could be his. You know that um, little saying that goes, saddest, the saddest words of tongue or pen are these, it might have been. And uh, the Lord had told King Saul, you know what, if, if you just would have obeyed and trusted me, things could have gone a lot better and it would have blessed him. So we said goodbye to 1 Samuel, uh, which finishes up uh, with that story about how, after years of rebuke, stiff-necked Saul, uh, there on the battlefield against the Philistines, uh, is destroyed and without remedy. So sadly... Uh, caught in the net of their dad's missteps and failure to obey, his three sons are also taken down as well. And as is often the case when parents stray from the path, it's not just their lives that they mess up, but it's also passed on to kids and others as well. Uh, and so we're going to take a look now. Second Samuel now begins chapter 1. We saw last week with news reaching David, who's been hiding out for 10 years, but the last 16 months in enemy territory, a fugitive from the mad king. And so David surprised us, didn't he, last uh, chapter? He, instead of throwing a party when he gets the news about King Saul being dead, 
instead of writing a song of celebration, like, you know, ding dong, the king is dead, you know, uh, instead he composes uh, a dirge, a funeral song. Now this is from the pen and from the heart and the lips of somebody who was a victim of this guy's attempted assassination of this man and, and really caused him to lose 10 years, 10 years of a wasted life. And then he's going to write this song of praise. And we talked all about that last week. Uh, the funeral song that David writes, bringing us now to chapter two, but last chapter, he writes this beautiful song about the strengths and the ad, ad, admirable and the noble things about uh, Saul. A man who never got it right. It was a disaster in many ways, but when you hear that song, you can, you can hardly believe that he's talking about this man who made his life so miserable. Now, why did he do that? We talked about that last week, but, you know, he commanded his followers to learn the song. David did. He had 600 men, and he said, you must learn this song. Because David is now going to start an administration based on grace and forgiveness and agape love. This is his administration. It's going to be one built on mercy. And no leader wants resentful or hateful or unforgiving followers. And so he gives the edict. And I mean, his men were victimized as well. The 600 guys were fugitives because of Saul, but he, David knows that they're going to struggle with resentment and hate in their hearts. So he commands them to learn the song as well. And as you're singing and memorizing those words and the Holy Spirit's involved, I think that's part of the therapy and part of the, the, the learning how to forgive people is to, to concentrate on God's grace. After all, King David is going to want in Psalm 32, he's going to say, Lord, blot out all of my sins. So he's going to be the kind of guy, if he expects God to blot out all of his sins, he's able to look at a guy like King Saul and, and see him the way God could see him in grace. And so uh, it's just good for the guy's souls. It's good for the morale of the congregation for them to remember Saul in a wonderful way, to give the benefit of the doubt, to see the good, to remember the best, to let it go, to let love cover a multitude of sins. And then uh, somebody has written, showing mercy sets the prisoner free, not them, you, the one who shows the mercy. And so the song of praise uh, really didn't show us so much now the greatness of Saul because we have the chapters and we know what kind of guy he really was uh, outside of the grace of God. But what it does show us something about David, how great David was. And this is the kind of king that Israel needs. This will be an administration now uh, built upon grace. So yeah, dodge the spears. You don't, you don't line up to be uh, killed by the spears, but you know you leave the details of the case with God, and David just has this gift. He can forget easily the wrongs that have been done to him, the injuries. He puts it all in the light of God's bigger picture and God's grace. It's not about David. He knows that, and that allows him to forgive and to forget and to keep a hate-free heart. 
So it's time to move forward now with David. And he's done his part to move uh, himself and his men and Israel forward in grace, peace, and love now that Saul uh, is off of the scene. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses, uh, verses 1 through 6. Now, in the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the, Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When David was told that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the house of Judah anointed me king over them. So let's pause there. Our first point will be David is crowned. Now, some 15 to 20 years earlier, Samuel was sent by God to anoint David as king. You remember chapter 16 of 1 Samuel? Uh, the Lord said, I have chosen one of Jesse's sons to be king. Now, this is 15 to 20 years he's been waiting. He's been a work in progress because the Lord really, among other things, had uh, to do some foundational work in David's heart and his life and his character. He had to learn a few things. How to get back up after you take a spiritual spill. Uh, how to walk by faith and not by sight. He had to learn in those couple decades how to purge your heart of hate and bitterness. And by the looks of how he handled Saul's death, we can see that the Holy Spirit has really accomplished a lot in David's heart. God is after a man to represent him with the same kind of love and grace that God has in his heart. And so God had to take a lot of time to teach that to him. And so David had to learn how to seek the Lord instead of just plow forward in his own logic. And so this is what he's doing right now. Instead of just saying, well, Saul's dead. I'm in Philistine territory. I need to go back to Israel. Instead of just doing the obvious, and he wants to check in with God. So first of all, I see that faith really waits. Verse 1, in the course of time. You see, you know, he didn't just, he doesn't want to make this thing happen. He wants God to uh, exalt him to the position that God has in mind for him. He's not going to manipulate himself into that position. He can wait. You know, uh, there's no inaugural parade into Israel right away, there's no assuming anything. And you'd think otherwise. You think, man, he's dead. Let's go. Let's get out of Ziglach and let's get into Judah. Let's get this coronation process going. I've been waiting 20 years 
Samuel the prophet anointed me as king over Israel and I've been waiting 20 years. He's dead. Let's go. He doesn't do that. He will not sit on that throne and ever have to worry, did I do this? Did I make this happen? He's going to wait for God to do his thing. It won't be by David's machinations or scheming. That's a fun word to throw around. You want to try it? Go ahead. Machinations. Wasn't that fun? (laughs) David isn't going to make it happen. He's not going to seize the throne. Listen to what he writes in Psalm 37. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. He lives his life by these psalms. This is in his heart. That's why it turns into Psalm 37, because it's in his heart. It's how he lives. Promotion comes neither from the east or the west. It is God who decides. He brings one down. He exalts another. Psalm 75 and verse 6. So, you know, it's a fine line, isn't it? Uh, Between being ambitious for the Lord and letting him lead. You know, it's a good thing to desire to be in ministry or to desire a position even of an elder. It says, you know, to desire to be an elder is a good thing. It's just a fine line of, of wanting to serve the Lord, but letting God open the doors and God puts you in the right place and to have a, a loose grip on your agenda for how you think your life should go and how your gifts fit the body. Just to be sensitive and open and flexible. Uh, that's what we see here. So faith waits and faith seeks God. He just doesn't assume, you know, somebody might say to him, you know, why aren't you moving to, come on, let's go, let's go to Judah now. He's gone. Where's your faith? God spoke a word to you. His faith is in waiting and being cautious and checking in with God. So he says to the Lord, should I go to Judah now? He's gone. Should I go? And I think God really likes it when there's kind of an obvious thing there. But we just take the time to ask him not to assume like, hey, I know I can I can figure this out. What if it wasn't? I think God delights when we're always putting it back into his court and saying, God, can you just confirm this? Should I go? And he says, yeah, yes, it's time. And then he asks another question, and that's what prayer is about. Prayer isn't just your time to spin off a nice little monologue about, you know, what you think and feel and what you need. Uh, David is saying, okay, oh, wow, you, you said yes. Well, where exactly? Another question. Asking God questions and waiting, and then he gives an answer, and then asking another question. It's it's almost like a conversation. (laughs) And so he he gets the answer, and he says, Hebron, and whether how he's communicating through uh, prophets or or, uh, however he's getting a word. You know, God's servants just need to be flexible, like I said, open, willing to change course, Always just saying, you know, I don't assume anything about my position here. I assume that I'm supposed to be here until uh, otherwise I'm otherwise told. But we get these ideas. We cling on. And I mean, I don't ever want to be 
one day in a place that I so love, but God is saying, I've got something else over there. That's why we need to be checking in and inquiring with him. And then flexible. It isn't so much about uh, me trying to get God to, to establish my plans. It's prayer is trying to figure out where I belong in God's plans. Amen? All right. I like that. God likes it when we ask, even when it appears that it's quite clear. Uh, so <clears throat> David's gone from a bad place to a good place. He's moved to Judah. He's back. He's out of enemy territory. So I would say going from a bad place to a good place spiritually, a few things are involved. Step one, uh, he had a change of heart. Remember when he encouraged himself in the Lord and then started seeking God. Step two was he moved out of enemy territory. He's pals with the Philistines, friendship with the world. Now he's back to the land of promise. Now he's with God's people. He's come out of the world. You can't get blessed when you're out spending time in the world. And so step three, now he's back in Judah. Uh, he takes his place. He embraces his role. And they anoint him king for the second time. Uh, king over Hebron. Now, the men of Judah only. So David is king over them, his clan only. He's 30 years old, and apparently God has more work for uh, David to do in his heart and life. And there are other reasons, too. Uh, we got to deal with some leaders who have some selfish ambition and pride and are getting in the way because the 11 other tribes that make up Israel aren't on board and they will not be on board for seven and a half years. So he's only going to be crowned out of one little tiny part of Israel, his home, uh, his home village, his home uh, clan, the tribe of Judah. And so now Judah recognized that will of God but because of one of Saul's relatives who wouldn't submit, uh, a costly civil war is coming, and uh, it's not going to be pretty. Verse 4, so the, verse, the first act uh, as king is gracious because that's what's in his heart. Uh, he hears that the men of Jabesh-Gilead had this special love for Saul. And so when the enemy... Uh, defiled uh, Saul's body and then took it to uh, public disgrace with the boys. The men who were connected to Saul uh, risked their lives and went and rescued his remains and gave him a proper burial. And David was told about that special deed that the men of Jabesh Gilead had done. And so he sends a message to them. Here's a paraphrase. God bless you guys for showing that kind of loyalty to your king, that kind of honor and burying, Saul. Just so you know, I'm going to return that favor to you as king. I'm not threatened by your love for Saul. In fact, I'm quite pleased. You have nothing to worry about now that I'm king. You see... He wants to disarm them. They're, they're worried, you know, oh, here comes Saul's enemy, and he's going to come in and hear about what we did and how much we loved him and how loyal we were. And he's saying, hey, that's okay. Did you hear the song I, ma I made up and composed? I loved him too in my own way. 
You have nothing to worry about. And everything he's thinking about is peace. It's not about him. It's about peace and the blessing of God's people. And, um, you know, David's just a different kind of king. And he's like his future son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's called the son of David, even though he is only related to David as a human being through Mary. But he is the God-man. But he is related to David nonetheless. He is the king who serves others. The Lord said in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. David's like that. He's the king who uh, Jesus washes the feet of his enemies. He has a shepherd's heart. The Lord always extending peace even to his enemies. You know Judas on the night that Jesus was betrayed? He, he sat Judas right by him in a seat of honor, and he extended the first sop to him, and that is a gesture of uh, honor. That's the love of Christ, and the love of Christ was already in David. Uh, verses 8 through 17. So meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Ashuri, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruiah, and David's men went out to, and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool and the other group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and they were counted off 12 men for Benjamin and Ishboeth, son of Saul, and 12 for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazarim, which means Battle of the Daggers. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the men of Israel were defeated by David's men. Alrighty, so we pause here. David has been crowned, and now we see that one man will resist and reject David's kingship. Now, that man is Saul's nephew, Abner. And Abner was general of Saul's army. Now, uh, Saul had four sons. Three of them died with him in the battle. But one, Ishbosheth was missing. His name means shameful man. Now, I don't know why you would name your kids shameful man, but you know, sometimes the meaning of the name just is divorced from the actual name and the person. For example, we do that. Mary. Mary means bitter. Yeah, Mara means bitter as well. Uh, Jacob, no, 
no offense to all the Jacobs out there, we love you, but you, your name means trickster. You know, you know, Tristan means sad. You know, we, we just, we don't know that. We just like the name, you know, and, and we have meanings for it. So Ishbosheth kind of, he wasn't in the battle for a reason. He lacks courage. He's, he's rightly named, and they might, may have named him that just to give us a clue there. So uh, Abner is Saul's cousin here, and uh, the general, the top general for Saul. He single-handedly makes Ishbosheth the one surviving son of Saul, king. Now, Abner is the real power. He's really using Ishbosheth, who's a real weak guy, but he really wants to be the power there in Israel. He could have persuaded Israel to, to go over to Judah and to come under uh, David as king, but he has an agenda, and we're going to see that tonight. Uh, pride, selfish ambition, and uh, what most matters is, is his life. Uh, really, since doing God's will can leave us vulnerable, it's often resisted. We're going to find out that this general, formerly Saul's general, Abner, is going to mess everything up here. Uh, he knows that it's God's will for David to be king, but he resists that because of all the what ifs. Because he's, he was Saul's commander, right? So David already has Joab. There's going to be no place for him. So he's thinking, I know what God wants, but I don't want to do it because it makes me vulnerable. And he doesn't have the kind of faith to overcome that. One writer said, living by what if is the worst way to live your life. Living by God's will and truth, no matter what if this or what if that, is better than not doing God's will in an effort to protect self interest but this is how Saul lived his life and that's why his first general is just like Saul and now he's going to go and find Saul's boy and he's going to prop him up and he's going to cause trouble and even though we know Abner knows going to cause a lot of problems well I'm going to put a slide up just and I'm going to leave it up there because we're going to tell a story soon and it's going to involve all of these guys and if you, if, you're, if you don't have a visual, for me, I get all confused because I can't remember which guy's related to who. So we've got King Ishbosheth, right, is the fourth son who's now going to be king over Israel. He didn't even want to be, but the general, Abner, is propping him up, and now he, they're king, he's king over Israel. We've got King David over in Judah with his men, right? And now his general's Joab, and Abishai and Asahel, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel are brothers, and they're all David's nephews. They're sons of Zeruiah. And if you check out First Chronicles chapter two and verse sixteen, and I can't believe it, that stuck in my head as a reference, but if you check that verse out, you'll find out that it, Zeruiah is David's sister. So these three boys are David's nephew, nephews. And their brothers. All right. So as we go through the study, you can, if you get confused, what? Well, no, who's what? What? Did, yeah, there it is. All right. You can just look up there. That would help me. Now, um, the contest essentially is between now Abner, 
Saul's general, and Joab, David's, all right? So the generals there in your text, uh, Abner and Joab, square off with their guys. Uh, What a fascinating uh, encounter. These two generals are meeting. They're very similar. Uh, They're tough. They're mean. They're, They're very skilled military men. Now, they meet at this famous pool, which exists today. They, they know exactly where the pool is. It's cut out of rock, and it's just a, a beautiful place to visit. Uh, but uh, it, it, uh, this is where they meet. They square off, and one side's on one side of the pool, and one side's on the other side of this little pond in this rock area, all right? And so Abner suggests uh, some entertainment. He says, let's play gladiator. All right. And so he says, uh, we'll choose 12 guys. You choose 12 guys. And they're going to represent the 12 tribes coming under somebody. So whoever wins is going to win all. And that's oftentimes to avoid a big bloodshed and a big war. They would do these little battles and say, whoever wins out of the 12 and the 12, then all bets are off and we go over to the uh, winner's side. Now, it's too too bad because the, the guys get into a headlock and they, they take their daggers and they shiv one another and they all die. And you know what's sad is that throughout the ages, it's, uh, it's, it comes down to a couple guys with egos and a grasp for power and then a, a bunch of young men have to die. That's always how it is. And it's here. These two guys said, hey, you know, let's play gladiator. And, you know, and then 24 guys have to die right there. Just terrible. And I told you it's a place of daggers or sharp edge there. Uh, it's a fierce battle now ensues and a battle which David's men are going to win. All right, let's read the story. And you've got your little reference points up there if you get confused. So the battle, the, 12, the 24 guys just die right there. And then David's men kind of leap forward, and now a battle starts, and here's what happens. The battle that day was very fierce, verse 17. And Abner and the men of Israel were defeated by David's men. The three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now, Asahel was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Asahel? It is, he answered. Then Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right or to the left. Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Asahel Uh, would not stop chasing him. Again, Abner warned Asahel, Stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Asahel refused to give up the pursuit, so Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. He fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when he came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died. But Joab and Abishai, the brothers, pursued Abner. And as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Amma near Gia on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. Then the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner. 
They formed themselves into a group and took their stand on top of a hill. Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their brothers? Joab answered, As surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued the pursuit of their brothers until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men came to a halt. They no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight any more. All that night, Abner and his men marched through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, continued through the whole Bithron, and came to Mahanaim. Then Joab returned from pursuing Abner and assembled all his men. Besides Asahel, 19 of David's men were found missing. But David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. They took Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men marched all night and arrived at Hebron by daybreak. All righty, so David is crowned. And one man resists, and now many lives are lost as a result. Now, James chapter 3 and verse 16 says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder in every evil practice. Now, 12 from both sides, 24 guys fall down and die right in front of everybody. And David's men, as I said, lunge forward, and Abner's men immediately suffer great loss. So they take off, and Abner is running away. Now, he's running for his life. Now, General Joab has his two brothers fighting alongside, and one of them is a star runner, you know, cross-country champion Asahel. I'm sure you've heard of that. Now, perhaps Joab gives Asahel the nod. Like, go get him, tiger. Uh, he thinks he can run. Uh, we got a secret weapon here. And he looks at his brother and says, go get him. You know, I, I don't know. You don't, I mean, maybe it's all Asahel's idea as well. Maybe he saw one of his buddies, one of the 24, one of the 12, die. And he's all ready. He's got fire in his heart, and it's translated to his feet. Now, interesting dialogue as, there, as Asahel closes in on General Abner. Here's a paraphrase. Asahel closes in on General Abner like a heat-seeking missile. And Abner looks over his shoulder and says, That you, Asahel, isn't it? And he says, You better believe it is. And he says, Man, give it up. Go after some other young soldier you could actually beat. But Asahel kept gaining on him. One more time, Abner tries to dissuade him. Stop chasing me, man. You're going to end up dead. And I have too much respect for your brother to kill you and start a blood feud. Now, clearly, I believe Abner doesn't want to fight this kid for two reasons. Maybe he's nervous he's going to lose. Or maybe it's as he says. He really doesn't want to kill Joab's little brother. Now, in verse 23, Asahel just won't be deterred, and Abner slows down and stops and just wants him to get away from him, and it seems that the momentum of the pursuit really is what does uh, Asahel in, and it seems that it's without intention to kill him, and he thrusts the butt of his spear backwards, and you've read 
uh, what happens. It's not pretty. Uh, and the sight of the, their dead uh, comrade laying there in verse 23, um, everybody just kind of piles up. They're chasing, but they pile up at the, at the place where their fallen brother lay in such a terrible way to pay respects. Maybe they're grieved, they're horrified. But everyone stops, but only temporarily. Now Asahel's two brothers now pick up where Asahel left off. Now he's there um, fallen, but the two brothers pick up the chase and fleeing Abner reaches a certain hill and he's resupplied by the Benjamites. Now they're Israelites and now he's got an army. He's up on a hill and Abner and his army turn. They're on top of the hill and they face uh, the two brothers coming up the hill with David's men. And that is when Abner cries out and suggests a, a, a truce there. And now, a very interesting, here's his truce in verse 26 uh, through 28, his proposal. Uh, here's the New Living Translation. Abner shouted down to Joab, must we always be killing each other? Don't you realize that more of us are about to die? And there's only bitterness in store. When will you call off your men from chasing their Jewish brothers? Then Joab said, God only knows what would have happened if you hadn't spoken. For we would have chased you all night long if necessary. So Joab blew the ram's horn and hit uh, and stopped. And, and that stopped the men uh, from chasing the troops of Israel. Now, if I were Joab and Abner was saying that to me. Here's what I would have said. First of all, who started this? What, what, what is this? Who started this whole thing? Hello, you're the aggressor. My brother's dead, and you're asking me how long will we keep fighting? Uh, you know the Lord wants David to be king. He knows that. He's going to admit it in a chapter or two. How about you submit, and you surrender, and you stop causing the trouble? Now, here's what one commentator said about troublemakers like Abner. Troublemakers always do their damage, and when their backs are against the wall, they get a taste of their own medicine. Oh, suddenly, they want an end to the strife, and then they shift the blame onto their victims. So, Joab is kind of like David, like Abner is like Saul. Joab, he's got grace in his heart. He knows what David would do. And so he agrees. He realizes peace is better. And so he sounds a trumpet. He probably doesn't want to lose his brother Abishai as well. He probably just wants to go home and, and, and bury his brother. His brother's still laying back on the trail with a spear. He probably just wants to go home and grieve. He's got his one kid brother there. And he's saying, hey, you know, you could lose him too. So he sounds the trumpet. And what do we got? We got 19 missing plus Asahel. So David lost 20 guys. David's side. David's not even there. 360 guys from Abner's side, Saul's side. Sad. The armies go home. Now, I just want to close by reflecting on uh, Abner's life. Um, well, first of all, he knew God's will, 
and he just didn't want to submit. He got news, hey, Saul's dead, David's ready. What are we going to do? Well, he says, hey, I've got a job. I've got a place of honor. People look to me. I'm comfortable. I get well paid for this. I get a little room in the palace. And we're going to find out later that he has a love interest. He has a love interest that he needs to keep his position to maintain relationship with her. And so because of all of those reasons, even though he knows very well that the Lord has spoken and all Israel kind of knows, David is the anointed next king of Israel because of what that will do to him and how it will inconvenience his life, he's unwilling to come under. He's like Saul that way, his mentor. And so because of that, Terrible things happen. You could rightly say that those 380 men died because of this one man's refusal to submit to God's will just because he's uncomfortable, he's scared, he's vulnerable, he's insecure. That's terrible. The power, think about it, of one person to either save life or destroy it, to build up or to tear apart, to heal or to harm to unite or to divide, to encourage or to discourage. It happens in relationships and families and corporations and congregations in town, wherever you put yourself first. The Lord says all the time, we are to consider others better than ourselves. We are are to deny self, pick up cross and follow for the interest of God's agenda and the people of God and our spouses and our children and the people in our sphere of influence. We, it's just amazing the power that we had. What if he would have said, you know, Saul's dead. Uh, David's in line to be king. Uh, he's going to need my help. And he had the power to unite 11 tribes to come under. What if you could have read that? We could have read that, that Abner was this hero. But instead, he, he just gets tunnel visions all about him, and it's just terrible. Uh, it, it, uh, if we live according to our feelings and are driven by our insecurities and fears and our self-centered promptings and what makes me happy, you know, and worship at the altar of the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I will be agents of death and separation, discouragement, division, pain, and suffering. That's always the byproduct of self-centered living, always, every single time. And it's so easy, rather than that, and to cause so much pain and suffering to people around us, to be other-centered, to be filled with the Spirit of God, and to care more about God's will than our own uh, agenda. Well, as we humble ourselves and live for God, people are going to get closer to God, be inspired to live for Jesus. Uh, Families and congregations will be united and strengthened in blessing. I remember talking to a man uh, many, many years ago, and uh, he said, you know, I'm in a miserable marriage. I've been miserable. I have grounds for divorce. He told me the story, and he did. And he said, but nobody knows I'm miserable. My kids don't know. 
nor shall they ever know. They see me treat their mother with kindness and respect. And I will go to my grave unfulfilled and unhappy in this marriage for them. And he, so, and he went on to say, even when they're grown, somebody said, oh, just wait until the youngest is up and out at 18. I said, no, he said, no way. This is my sacrifice to the Lord. Things don't look, maybe, maybe there'll be a miracle, maybe it'll get better, but I don't think so, and it hasn't in all of these years. I was so moved by him. I mean, he wasn't in harm's way or anything like that. He was just miserable and unfulfilled. But he said, what's more important? My adult children thinking their whole life was a lie and having to, to, to worry about uh, which house they're visiting for Christmas and all of these holidays and all of this. He says, look, I will not die by being unhappy. And I will not put my happiness before those kids. I just think, <laughs> I'm just amazed at that kind of thing. Now, we, there's the grace of God that, that covers us all. Praise God for that. But what about a little bit of that? What about a little bit of self-denial and cross-bearing? Because of the mess it'll make in somebody else's life if, if we don't die. Well, who's going to be the hero? Who's going to be the one who's just going to say, you know what, I'm going to deny myself, I'm going to pick up cross here. Because the love that God has put in my heart for the good of the other, the good of the whole, the good of God's agenda is higher than my own good. That's God's kind of love. And that's the kind of love this guy was talking about. Not everybody gets there. Not everybody has that kind of thing going on in their lives. But uh, it's a beautiful uh, way to live. And it's something that Abner just couldn't get because he was mentored by the wrong man and he listened to the wrong voice. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, just thank you for your great love and, and all the ways we learn vicariously through these characters. We thank you for giving us your word, your Holy Spirit that applies these truths to our hearts and lives. We ask for grace, Father, to, to live in a Christ-like way. It's just, we'll take a miracle because it'll be the fruit of the Holy Spirit and not of us. So help us, Lord. We just uh, commit ourselves to your care. In Jesus' name, amen.